We hope that we can be a people who really, like Dr. King, live out our faith. That it's not just lip service, but it's actually something that becomes embodied in the way that we treat one another, the way that we treat our spouses, the way that we treat our friends, the way that we treat our enemies. Um, That we would be a beloved community. Uh, Which brings me to today's uh, topic in the sermon series that we're actually entering into. It's actually a sermon series in the book of James, which is written by the brother of Jesus. Now... You heard that right, the brother of Jesus, someone who grew up with Jesus, uh, is James, who's one of the leaders of the early church. Now, one of the themes that you're going to see throughout the book of James is how do we live out true faith, not just kind of like lip service faith or kind of this ethereal thing, but how do we really live this thing out? Uh, The same way that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. talked about. And um, as we started, though, I mean, I I thought it'd be so unique to just explore, this is really a unique fact that. Jesus' brother, who he grew up with, is writing this letter to the early church. So I thought we'd actually investigate, um, where does James come up throughout the scriptures? Check this out. In the book of Galatians, which is a letter that was written to the church in Galatia from the apostle Paul. Look at what he writes. It says this. After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas. That's another name, for, another word for Peter, who's one of the early church disciples, and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. Now, he adds that clue because in the early church, uh, again, this wasn't some fictitious tale. It was, these were real people. And so here he is designating, hey, I saw James. You know James, the Lord's brother, the one that Jesus grew up with. All right, Paul. Well, check this out. Look, Galatians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. James is mentioned again. It says, For God, who was at work in Peter, or Cephas, as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, there he is again. Cephas and John, those esteemed as pillars. I mean, basically he's talking about how gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to, to the circumcised. He's recognizing. Remember that James, the Lord's brother that I mentioned to you earlier, he's one of the pillars of the church. He's one of the leaders here. And if you're wondering, if you want to know stories about Jesus when he was growing up, talk to James because that's his brother. Now this is astounding because James, who's one of the brothers, it's so different than the way that the story of James has been de- depicted earlier. Check this out when uh, the Gospel of Mark, which is a historical account of Jesus, check out where Jesus' brother, uh, as well as his family, is mentioned. Check this out. Mark chapter 6. When Jesus comes on the scene, when he's around 30 years old, like he's an adult now, he's doing miracles, he's teaching with great authority, and people are like, What? Jesus? You mean the carpenter? Look at what it says. It says, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James? There's his name. Again, he's coming up here. This is a real person. You have questions about Jesus? Ask his brother James. Or Joseph, Judas, and Simon. Aren't his sisters also here with us? And they took offense at Jesus. Because this guy's just a normal cat from from Nazareth. Like, who, what in the world? Who is this guy? Isn't he just a carpenter? Now, there's another clue about how Jesus's brothers, sisters, and mother even responded to Jesus. Check this out. John chapter 7, another historical account of Jesus. After this, Jesus went around Galilee. 
which is in the northern area. He did not want to go about in Judea. Judea is more of the, the headquarters where Jerusalem is because the Jewish leaders there for, were looking for a way to kill him. Jewish leaders were so threatened by the teaching of Jesus because he's teaching with great authority, calling out religious hypocrisy. I mean, Jesus is talking about loving your enemies, uh, praying for those who persecute you. And so these religious leaders are offended and they're out. They're really offended by him. And look at what it says. When the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers, one of which was probably James, said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea. It's like he's saying, leave Staten Island and go to Manhattan, where the bright lights are. That's where you're supposed to go. Why? So that your disciples there may see the works that you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. He's like, listen, Jesus, you're too big time for Staten Island. Nothing against Staten Island. You're too big time. Go to Judea and let's see if your act works in Judea. Like in Manhattan, in Midtown East, where all the big buildings are. Let's see what you can do. And it says, since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. This is what his brothers are saying to him. And look at the clue that John gives us. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. It's like they're doubting him. They're like, Jesus, listen, hey, you're doing these great, amazing things, but we grew up with you. Let's see if it really works over in Manhattan. Let's see if you've really got what it takes. I don't think he's gonna make it. I mean, we remember what he was like. We remember him struggling to learn to ride a bike. Do you remember that? Like, I mean, could you imagine what's happening amongst these brothers? Now, James is one of these people. Isn't that stunning that James is the one writing this letter now? Now, what happened then where James was one of these people that was doubting Jesus, wondering who he was? Like, this guy's calling himself the son of God? I mean, give me a break. We saw him go through puberty. You know, like, this is stunning. Now, some of you are like, well, Jesus, sorry if that was offensive to you in any way. But, like, I mean, he was human. He was living his life. His family witnessed these monumental life changes that happen in his life till he's 30 years old. So you can understand why are they doubting him? They're doubting him because if anything, he showed just how human he was. Now what happens though, where all of a sudden James goes from this brother and family that's doubting him to all of a sudden James is now a pillar of the church and one of the people that's talking about Jesus to everyone? Check this out, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, look at what he writes. He says, for what I received, he writes, this is what I received. This is what it means to have faith in God. I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the 12 disciples, uh, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Here, basically, Paul's making the case like, do you see this really happened? Jesus really lived. He really died. He really resurrected from the grave. Uh, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. There he is again. Remember James, the brother of Jesus who I've been writing about? He appeared to him also. Then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. He's talking about his own faith uh, journey and when he saw the resurrected Jesus. Isn't that stunning? 
what happened was James actually saw Jesus, his brother, live, die, and resurrect from the grave. Now, in the book of Acts, which is a historical account of the early church, it's after the resurrection of Jesus and all these people that have been eyewitnesses to what Jesus has done, his teaching, they're pondering, reflecting on this monumental moment that would change the world. Here's what happens in the book of Acts. Check this out, Acts chapter one. It says, then the apostles, after witnessing Jesus resurrect from the grave, ascend into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from a hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew. Now, this is a different James, by the way. There's all sorts of James, very popular name in the ancient world, right? Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew. James, this is another James as well. James, son of Alphaeus, right? James and John were brothers. Um, they were called sons of thunder, right? And James, son of Alphaeus. Uh, and Simon the Zealot and Judas, son of James. Now, these are all the 12 disciples, right? So they're, uh, minus Judas. So they're there and they've, they're huddling together. But look at this clue that's given, Let's guess who else is there? They all join together constantly in prayer. And look who's there now. Along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. <laughs> Isn't this stunning? The early church was the, the disciples who had witnessed the resurrection, but it's also Jesus' family, his brothers and his sisters who are now, all of a sudden, they're the ones who are basically saying, yep, our brother is the son of God. I mean, could you imagine that? Could any of you, if, you, if any of you have siblings, could you ever imagine you saying to your sibling, I am the son of God? If you can imagine that, let's talk later. You might have some problems there, right? I mean, isn't that stunning, though? What in the world? His family is now following him and all in. I mean, check out what James writes in his letter. Look at this. James, and this was the scripture that Bertie read for us. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. James is writing as a brother who everyone knows. This is Jesus' brother in the early church. And James is writing, he's basically like, I am a servant of my brother. Now that is stunning. Could you imagine, what in the world? How did he go from someone who's doubting, like, Jesus, come on, like, we, you kind of struggled with multiplication a little bit, you know, like, I, I saw that. Again, sorry, Lord, if you did not, sorry. I just, you know, but this is James now, who's a brother, who's basically, I am a servant of Jesus, my brother. Now, what does this reveal to us? What it reveals to us first is that Jesus really, lived he died and he rose again i mean how else could you explain how james would go from being someone who's somewhat skeptical or even jesus whole family goes from skeptical like what you you're talking about being the son of god to all of a sudden they're like i am the lord's servant uh, what would have changed it's that jesus really lived died and resurrected from the grave but moreover one of the interesting dynamics of this whole resurrection story is that for James to actually believe that Jesus resurrected from the grave, but that also that Jesus was who he says he is, which is the son of God, God incarnate. How in the world could they come to that? 
Now, here's an interesting conundrum that the early church found itself in. You see, because in 451 AD, there was a council of the early church that came together. Uh, 520 leaders from the early church that had burgeoned from that moment in Acts came together in the council of Chalcedon. And in Chalcedon, they basically came together and they were wrestling with this, uh, this truth about what they believed about Jesus. That scriptures would teach that Jesus was truly man, fully human, but also truly God. And some of the teachings that went awry had to do with, oftentimes, people would over-index one way or the other. They would either teach, Jesus was fully human. Let me tell you about what Jesus was like, his humanity. He's not God. He was just a representative, a mouthpiece of God somehow. And it's like, no, 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 you're missing out on what the scriptures talk about when Jesus himself says, I and the Father are one. So they they said, no, 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 you can't over-index and say like his humanity is paramount. Nor can you over-index and say basically like, oh, well, Jesus is fully God. In fact, when he appeared to people, it wasn't really a physical body. It was just some kind of apparition that appeared to people. And all these scholars came together and said, no. The witness account was that Jesus was fully divine as well. There's something about Jesus that's both truly God and truly man. And this council came together to put forth this doctrine of the incarnation. And they called it hypostatic union, that the nature of Jesus was that he held together both divinity as well as humanity. Fully, completely. Now, I realize some of you are like, man, I'm a sophisticated New Yorker. Try to get over on me about all this hypostatic union using these fancy phrases. Well, here's the thing what Christians believe, right? Christians believe, of course, because God is utterly unique and different. Of course, as a human being with a finite mind, like there are things about God that I will never fully understand. That's what it means to have faith. That's what it just means to believe that God is God and I am not. God can be someone who exists in hypostatic union, whereas me as a human being, I can just be me. And maybe not fully understand it. And yet the early church, they understood that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And there's no greater evidence of this than someone like James. It makes sense then why James, early on in his life, he'd be like, come on, Jesus, this is Jesus. He's just just like the rest of us in our family. Taking up the trade of carpenter. This is Jesus, regular plain old Jesus. What in the world? What's he talking about? See, his, his, his siblings knew. Yeah, he was fully human but his siblings also knew they also encountered his divinity and it's stunning that the people closest to Jesus i.e. his family here James is basically saying I am a servant of Jesus I mean can you imagine that now here's the second thing right it's not only that Jesus lived died and resurrected It's that Jesus lived with integrity. He was a fully integrated person with his humanity and with his divinity. He was not hiding. He was who he says he is. You know, nowadays, there's been all sorts of stories about uh, church leaders who, uh, stories of abuse and scandal. And uh, I mean, it's been a very sobering season, I think, even for myself as I wrestle with this, you know, and. You know, it's interesting because my, my kids now, they're 11 years old, and uh, my son is 11, my, my daughter is 8. So they're getting old enough now where they, they just, they notice things, and they're not afraid to speak about it, you know? And so, you know, my son, and, you know, when I'm talking to David, I'm like, David, you need to be patient with Avery, you know, his sister. 
He goes, oh, kind of like you were patient with mom the other day. You know, and then he smiles. <laughs> I'm like, um, what do you mean, man? What are you talking about? I'm, just, I'm, I'm patient. I'm a patient guy. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I know. Like, yeah, dad, I noticed, you know, you, you, you preached on patience. You preached on, like, being kind and loving. I, I noticed that. <laughs> and I'm like, that's why we need Jesus, son. You know, like, that's why we need him. The reality is, like, I mean, I'm a human being, and, like, here I am as this talking head on stage or whatever, but, like, I, I make so many mistakes, and I'm not the perfect representation of a life that's fully integrated, that speaks and behaves in ways that are consistent. Now, hopefully, and this is what the whole book of James will be about, it will be about us living and embodying, kind of like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is, is beckoning us toward, that we would be a people that really embody what it means to live integrated lives. The reality is none of us will be fully integrated, but hopefully, by this invitation, we see from the life of Jesus, I mean, Jesus was fully integrated. Uh, if he was not integrated, there is no way that his siblings and his mother would have followed him. There's no way. But what we see from him and the compelling life and the way that he speaks, like that he was someone that lived with incredible integrity. Now, in integrity, the same root word is integer or a whole number. In other words, to live with a kind of wholeness. Now, what would it look like for each one of us to live with that kind of wholeness? That what we say with our lips, that would be consistent with our behavior and how we were, not only to the people that we, uh, you know, that were distant from us, but the people that were closest to us. What would that look like? And, and this is what the, the book of James will be exploring. Now, there's this other clue, though, from this passage. Check out what James writes. James wrote in, John cha in James chapter 1, verse 1, James, a servant, a doulos of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the word for Lord is this word kurios. Kurios is this Greek word that means Lord. Now, the way that Lord was used often was there was this mantra in the Roman Empire, and it was basically that Caesar is Lord. Now, why is Caesar Lord? Because Caesar was the one that controlled the Roman Empire, the Roman government, the Roman economy. And so all these tales would be, uh, would be conjured up talking about the ways that Caesar was divine and, and deeply imbued with this divine kind of stamp and DNA. And so as a result, one of the early mantras in ancient Rome was Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. And here Jesus comes on the scene and all of a sudden there's this group of ragtag people who somehow had witnessed a resurrected carpenter from Nazareth. And he's basically like James and everyone else is basically saying, no, 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 Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Well, you're going to get thrown into prison for saying Jesus is Lord. He's like, listen, I write this so that you can chase me down. Jesus is Lord. He's Lord over my life. Isn't that your brother, James? Wait a minute, what are you talking about? That's your brother. You're going to say he's Lord. He's like, absolutely. I'll also say that I'm his servant. His posture has completely changed, and now he recognized what it shows us, just even with this language, 
is that the posture of his heart, it's not only that Jesus lived, died, and resurrected from the grave. It's not only that Jesus is fully integrated. It's that Jesus is the one that James surrenders his entire life to. He's surrendering his future, his will, his ways. Everything is surrendered to saying, Jesus is my Lord. But that's your brother. Why would you say that right here? Because Jesus is Lord. And the task of following Jesus means we surrender to his lordship. He becomes preeminent in our lives above and over everything. See, the mantra of the early church over and against Caesar is Lord was Jesus is Lord. Not your happiness is Lord. Now, this is not to say that happiness is something that we shouldn't pursue because the scriptures talk about delighting yourself in the Lord and the ways that we can delight. But do you see, sometimes we, modern New Yorkers, can make happiness our Lord. And so the filter by which we make decisions about our life, our future, is about my own happiness. And yet, Jesus is like, no, 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 do you realize Jesus is Lord? My money is Lord. We would never say that out loud, but believe me, I mean, isn't that the mantra of the city, that money is Lord? And yet Jesus comes on the scene and he's like, no, 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 do you see what it means to follow me is that you surrender everything, even your money. My family is Lord. Jesus is like, no, 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 your family is not Lord. Yes, of course, you're supposed to honor your family, honor your parents, uh, honor and love and don't exasperate your children. All these things that have been taught about what it means to love your family. But do you see when you make them Lord, Jesus is like, no, 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 there's only one Lord. Jesus is Lord. My wants are our Lord. My ambition is my Lord. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. See, for the early church, they all recognized that what it meant to follow Jesus was to make Jesus Lord, to surrender to Jesus' lordship. But it's not only because Jesus died and resurrected from the grave. Because Jesus' death and resurrection, I mean, what it demonstrates to us is just how powerful God is. See, but that's not what we, it's not only his power that we surrender to, it's something deeper than that. Look at what David Benner writes in his book, Surrender to to Love. He says, those who surrender obey, but not all who obey surrender. In other words, you could live a good life on the outside and it looks like you've surrendered, but maybe you fully haven't surrendered. It is quite easy to obey God for the wrong reasons. What God desires is submission of our heart and will, not simply compliance in our behavior. The surrender Jesus invites from us, choosing his will and his life over our own can never be motivated by anything but love. (laughs) See, the early church knew not only was Jesus powerful, resurrecting from the grave, But Jesus was loving. Jesus himself would say, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Jesus would basically say, the reason I've come into the world so that you might know a God of incredible love. And what it means to call Jesus Lord is to surrender to my love. 
to trust that whatever I'm going through, whatever grievances I carry into the room today, whatever hopes and ambitions, whatever longings, whatever pain, whatever addictions, whatever brokenheartedness, whatever I carry into the room, God, I surrender to your love. In Psalm 63, there's this line that I love. It says, because your love is better than life. Because your love is better than life. How many of us have ever experienced God that way? And what if the invitation for all of us today, as we look to just surrendering, what would it look like for each of us? Type A, hard-charging, well-educated, well-earning, Manhattanites, what would it look like for us to surrender and to say, God, your love is better than life. I want to surrender to your love. That's the invitation for all of us. Will you surrender? Will you say, Jesus, you be Lord over my life. I believe in who you are, what you've done, and why you've done it. Because you're a God of love.